the dining room Love Talk Radio. Okay. These two watchers, and they're possibly both of us. It could very well be. <laughs> Actually, I haven't, haven't brought it up on here yet. Oh, one's me. <laughs> so one, one is you. Oh, okay. And do, 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 do. all right. Now, I got a slide as well. So, yeah. All right. Hi, everybody. Um, I did not – I don't have a drink for myself. I'm going to need to get you out here and get you started and get a drink for myself. I'll pour you with me. Oh, darn, not whiskey. Oh, but I'm going to right now. <laughs> okay. Give me whiskey, whether you want it or not. I'm drinking beer. No, just... Beer's good. Beer's it's, delicious. It's a really good beer. It's Rich Brow beer. Yeah, Rich Brow. Our, our friends great. down at Rich Brow. So, I've got Alex and Patrick. Patrick, what's up, guys? Hello, hello. Happy Mondays. Do you have a preference? Tell them what I have open. Uh, not... Oh, hey, hey, Nico, leave her alone. Hey, hey. Come here, buddy. Vincent. Oh, that's it. <sighs> I was thinking Vincent, Robert? I said. Uh, the rum? Yeah. Sure. Sure, we could do that. Yeah, I got to find Robert. All right, where are you? Oh, yeah, God forbid we do this sober, yeah. Oh. Robert, there's no sober right now. Yeah, no. Oh, which one about Tennessee today? Tonight, yeah, tonight is Yeah. So they were the uh, the, the 
co-producers for the RBA Burlesque Festival. It's the second annual one. Lots I was going to say, there was a lot of murder and mayhem. Yes. It was fantastic. Somebody did. They did the Richmond Vampire. Murph did the Richmond Vampire. did the Richmond Vampire. It was fantastic. I, I saw them start to crawl up on stage and like, Murph, did you do my favorite? So, so that was a lot of fun. That was Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. Beth and I went to all three of those shows. And then That's Saturday during the day, we went down to Williamsburg to visit our friends at Scares the Care. Yep, because they had OfferCon 2, and they will be doing three next year. Yep, they've already announced. AuthorCon 3 will take place next year. Details to come, but um, fantastic event. We, we came back with quite a few books. Uh, a stack of books like that. I Literally, that's not an exaggeration. So a lot, uh, lot of fantastic sci-fi horror books for us to uh, to read up on. And, yeah. So It was busy. It was fun. Yeah. And we took Sunday off. Yes, and we took Sunday off. And, and Alex, you found her Etsy shop already. Thank you. Right. <laughs> so they're cool shirts, guys. Yeah, we're we're pretty excited about them. So yeah, uh, quite a few people at AuthorCon who really enjoyed the emotional support ghost. Yep. Same so, thing at the Burlesque Now I will say that everything is there is all set up. You can buy it. Um, I am looking forward to the opportunity to do a little bit of fine-tuning on the shop. That's not to say that the products are going to drastically change or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I'm going to add, like, jewelry and a few other things. Yeah. So you just need to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to take a little bit of time, but we're, we're kind of excited about, um, about that. But, yeah. So, yeah, that's where we've been the last couple of weeks. This next month pretty much is going to kind of be a normal month for us. Mm-hmm. We're, um, yeah, we're, we got our uh, April is we, we're getting back to our normal tour hours. Uh, we got tours now Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, mm-hmm. and we're operating on our summer hours. Yep. So, so Shadows at 7, Churchill at – or, sorry, Creepy Hill also at 7, Churchill at 7.30. No, Santa's Capitol at, Hill at 7.30. Thank you, sorry. Capitol Hill at 7.30, Phantoms at 8, Churchill at 9. Yes. So, yep, so, and that's going to be uh, our, 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 our April and May, but once we hit Memorial Day, we will be running – seven days a week. It's all available on the website already. You can go and see what we got available. So a lot going on there. And yeah, we're we're excited. A lot going on. So with that, we're gonna jump into stories and I'm gonna say catch your mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm just gonna plug RavenCon. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, RavenCon's uh, April twenty first to twenty third. Um uh, yeah, it's gonna be super duper fun if you like low key cons and having fun. That's a convention center. That is not the convention center. That is at a hotel at a place for sure. I will definitely get the name of the hotel for you. Okay. At the end. <laughs> no problem. We will plug you in at the end. But, yes, we have a lot of territory to cover tonight. Uh, on to Tennessee. We're already 10 minutes in. Oh. This is going to be a, a fairly long episode, I do have to say, because, well, it just simply is. It just is, because... Well, when I first set up the script, I forgot Nashville, and I forgot Memphis, and I forgot music. Music. You put together an entire script without mm-hmm. talking about music in Tennessee, and that was not allowable, so I had to go ahead and make some significant adjustments. Now, I will say, they were on the part two script, but he, he mixed them up, so yeah. it's so. a longer script. Anyway. Anyway, here we go. So we're going to start in Franklin, Tennessee, at the uh, Carson Plantation, and this is just a little south of Nashville. Uh, it was built in 1826, mostly by the hands of slave labor. It belonged to a politician uh, called Randall Gavok. McGavock, excuse me. Uh, it's a red brick federal style residence with 11 rooms at the end of the driveway lined with cedar trees. Uh, of course, it is the epitome of the antebellum look. For decades, the McGavock family lived their lives in relative comfort at the plantation, but on the evening of November 30th, 1864, the home found itself on the front lines of the Battle of Franklin. It was a catastrophic loss for the Confederate Army of Tennessee as multiple frontal assaults on a fortified Union line left thousands of soldiers dead and wounded. It's considered to be one of the bloodiest hours in the Civil War. The plantation would serve as the largest, uh, serve as the largest of several field hospitals that opened up in the vicinity of the battle. 300 men were brought into the plantation for treatment on the first night after the battle, and half of them would die there. The floors of Carton uh, still bear the bloodstains of that night. 
1866, two acres of this plantation were de designated as a final resting place for the Confederate soldiers that were killed during the battle on the property. Family maintained the cemetery until their deaths, and then um, the McGoffock family owned Carton until 1911, when Susie Lee, one of the widows, sold the property. It is now listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and in 1977, the home and its 10 acres were donated to the Carton Association. Artifacts from the family were preserved and collected to be kept there, including a leather-bound journal inscribed with the name of the family. Finger bowls and even a cemetery book, which actually contained the locations of the final resting places of many of those who were buried there. 1,700 Confederate soldiers are buried on the plantation cemetery, making it the largest Confederate graveyard in the South. Given the devastation that this site has witnessed, it's of course a little surprised that it's effective. Quite a few of them. Um, but what is surprising is that they're not all related to the battle. There's the ghost of a young girl who has been seen in the kitchen. She's believed to be a tragic young woman who was murdered before the war by a suitor that she rejected. She frequently spends time caring for the state, sweeping the floors in the late evening hours. Uh, the, excuse me, the young murdered woman is not alone in the kitchen, as the floating head of the cook who worked for the family during the Civil War has also been spotted there. I'm not quite sure why it's just the head. Mm. Let's see. Um, she actually can be heard bustling around in the kitchen, going about her various duties, even in the afterlife, but it's only the head that's seen, which I find rather dirty. It is kind of odd, but I mean, it happens sometimes. Yeah. You talk about, like, Sarah, for example, Mr. Agate at the home Museum. This is true. You always get an arm or a leg of him. So. Which is, again, um, odd, but... Anyway, uh, spectral children can also be seen peering from the windows of the home, and suddenly those who are... Uh, you know, well, they know that nobody lives there anymore. Other spirits linger around the front and back porch of the home, especially in the autumn. A woman will glide around the back porch. A Confederate general anxiously paces back and forth on the front porch. And some claim to have seen Carrie McGavick, uh herself sitting on the porch in a long pink gown gazing towards the cemetery. Of course, many soldiers also wander the ground. Uh, they are seen wandering in the adjacent fields. The sounds of charging horses accompanied by gun and cannon fire can be heard on the ground. Unexplained moans and sighs rise from the graveyard, chilling laments of so many sudden and violent deaths. A report from a visitor who had an ancestor of fight in the Battle of Franklin is really chilling. Uh, he wanted to only be known as a Mr. P. He arrived at the plantation just after 5 p.m. only to find that it was closed. Undeterred, he made the most of his visit by proceeding to walk around the place. Following the path and thinking about the events that transpired at the plantation, he neared the porch and saw a silhouette of a man that he thought was about to get on the horse. But the horse vanished. Noticing another man on the porch, Mr. P asked him what happened to the, uh, the horse, and the man explained that the horse was shot from underneath the soldier, as his horse had been earlier. Mr. P isn't the only person who has encountered these horseless spirits. Many have reported seeing them in and around the plantation, seeking their spectral mount. Rum is not for you, sir. He's a loud boy. So, next we are going to slide into Nashville, the music city. Now, we can't have a show about ghosts in Tennessee without at least one musically rooted ghost story. And to find those tales, we will turn our attention to the Ryman Auditorium, one of the most storied venues in all of modern music. The Ryman looks and feels a lot like a church because that's how it began, as the Union Gospel Tabernacle, which opened to the public in 1892. It was the brainchild of a riverboat captain named Thomas Ryman, who was inspired by the Reverend Sam Jones during a Nashville tent revival. Ryman wanted to create a space where others could share the kind of moving spiritual experience they he'd had. <clears throat> Twelve years after the opening of the Union Gospel, Gospel Tabernacle, Thomas Ryman passed away. Remembered as a beloved and devoted member of the community, the Reverend Sam Jones proposed that the tabernacle be renamed to the Ryman Auditorium to honor Thomas. In the years after Thomas's passing, the Ryman Auditorium did see notable change. While the building may have been renamed after its founder, it did start to drift from his original vision. The Ryman started to welcome secular guests. And the religious experience that, the, that Ryman uh, had been built for started to fade into the background. 
Headliners such as Catherine Hepburn, Charlie Chaplin, and Harry Houdini started visiting the Ryman, and country music pushed hymns from the stage. In 1943, the Ryman became the official home of the Grand Old Opry. Yes, that's it. Yep. Needless to say, Thomas Ryman would not have been happy with the shift, and that's why some say that he was the first to haunt the Ryman Auditorium eternally protesting the changes to his beloved tabernacle and the loss of its religious shine. Not that anyone is listening to those protests. Still, performances will sometimes be interrupted with loud and explicable noises and malfunctioning lights, all of which gets attributed back to Thomas Ryman. Certain acts were plagued by stomping footsteps up and down the aisles, sometimes creating so much unsettling noise that audience members left. Infamously, the ghost disrupted the Metropolitan Opera's production of Carmen in the early 1900s and the production of Tobacco Road in the 1930s. The tales of the Ryman don't stop with interrupted performances, though. Some go so far as to say that the Ryman is cursed. After the Grand Old Opera arrived in 1943, some of its performers met with tragic fates. The legendary Hank Williams died of heart failure at the age of 29, and the immensely talented Patsy Cline died in a plane crash at the age of 30. Perhaps it's a little surprise that these two are also rumored to be amongst the spirits that linger at the Ryman. The spirit of Hank Williams has been spotted backstage, on stage, and in the back alley of the Opry that leads to Tootsie's Orchid Lounge, a place where he would frequent before he performed. Hank's presence can be a little surprising for some. Even though the Grand Old Opry helped solidify his fame, he was also dismissed from the Opry because he could be unreliable and had problems with alcoholism. Of course, it could be that Hank came back specifically because he was told to leave. One of those try-to-fire-me-now moments, if you will. Then there is Patsy Klein. They think that she is the spirit in the theater that is simply known as the Lady. The lady isn't content to just sit and watch. She also sings. The staff will often be treated to her tunes as they close the Ryman late in the evening. The spirit of presence at the Ryman seems to, uh, to go a little beyond its founders and performers, though. The Ryman served as the site of several reunions of Confederate soldiers in years long past. One of those soldiers is rumored to have remained at the building long after his death. The gray man frequently sits quietly in the balcony watching rehearsals and disappears whenever someone attempts to get a closer look. Despite the fame of the Ryman, its fate has not always been certain. In the 1970s, the Opry moved to a new Grand Old Opry house. Locals had to fight to save the Ryman, and Gaylord Entertainment Company thankfully invested in its restoration. This allows the Ryman to continue to shine for the community, performers, and its spirits. One final tale from the Ryman from a much more recent time. If you keep up with celebrities and current events, you may know that Lisa Marie Presley, the daughter of Elvis and a talented performer in her own right, passed away a couple of months ago. She did have the opportunity to perform at the Ryman in her life, and she had a very bizarre experience there one night after finishing a set. After her performance, Lisa Marie headed to her dressing room. However, the door would not budge, no matter how hard she or her guards tried to open it. Finally, when the singer and her guards reached the height of frustration, they heard her long-dead father's distinctive laugh, and the door simply opened. It seems that Elvis had returned to hear his daughter perform, show his support, and maybe have a little bit of fun at her expense. Elvis is like Poe. He moves up and down the coast. He really does. Including here in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, have we been to Nashville? Um, um, I have been to Memphis, not Nashville. I, I, have, I haven't been to Tennessee, period. It, which is really shocking, considering we're pretty close. It, uh, it's on our list. It is on our list. It's just that we haven't done it yet. Yeah. Maybe. Again, we need to get promotion money to go do road trips so, so we can do live shows. Uh, oh, and uh, ah, Alex was asking, ah, Patrick has been to Nashville, and Alex asked Patrick for a recommendation. Okay. Got it. Got it. So, yes. And so, yes. <laughs> Yuna is listening intently. Yes. And I got, I got it. Billy. I got it. 
Yeah, got Nico on my lap. And Vincent's off camera behind the camera. Yeah, he's sleeping. Yeah. All right, so we're going to bump over to University of Tennessee at the Knoxville campus. Uh, we um, bless you. I'm still dealing with allergies. <laughs> anyway, so um, interesting fact about the university is the uh, mascot is known as the Volunteer. The origin's a little less known. On a whole. One of the state of Tennessee's nickname is, of course, the Volunteer State. This dates back to the War of 1812, when 1,500 Tennessee men stepped forward to fight in the war, a disproportionately high number of men for the population of the state at the time. The name stuck. The Tennessee is still respected as a state that offers the highest number of volunteers to the armed forces uh, in the United States. Uh, the nickname is actually so well known that it was unofficially adopted by the students of the university during the Spanish-American War, and the volunteers became the official mascot in 1905. So there is your Jeopardy trivia for the night. <laughs> With that said, the University of Tennessee is known for its volunteer spirit. That's not only the kind of spirit that lingers on this campus, however. If you watch our shows regularly, you might remember that the University of North Dakota featured a prominently in our Haunted North Dakota episode a few weeks back. Well, just like that state and its university from the U.S. northern border, Tennessee and the University of Tennessee have much to offer as well. Founded in 1794 as a Blount College, the University of Tennessee has a long history. And we could spend the rest of the show literally talking about the university's ghosts. We have that many stories. We're not going to tell them all tonight. <laughs> Just going to tease you a little bit. Uh, so, saving some in reserve, here are the ones we're going to talk about. Let's start with Perkins Hall. This is the original Blount Hall. Perkins Hall was dedicated in 1950 after Dr. Charles A. Perkins, who served the university for many years in several capacities. Uh, he, of course, started in 1892. His wife, Aggie, Agni, excuse me, was the first dean of the women for the university started in 1898, and Perkins Hall was built near the original Blount Hall, which was built in 1900. Note that the version of Blount Hall in this story was demolished in 1979, and has since been replaced with the current Blount Hall on a different part of the campus. But during the foundation work for the original Blount Hall, bodies of eight Union soldiers were uncovered and relocated to the nearby National Cemetery. Well, cemetery. Cemetery. There we go. While the original Black Hall stood, it was often said that the spirits of these soldiers would roam the corridors. After its demolition in 1979, the spirits didn't simply disappear. On the grassy area outside of Perkins Hall, on the clear moonlit nights, people would see these soldiers looking over maps, talking to one another. Maybe they're still working out strategies for a war that ended so many years ago, or maybe they're just trying to figure out where their graves are now located. We don't know. Either way, they're still part of the University of Lord's Day. Moving to the heart of campus, we find the hills, where every university has the hills. Oh, for sure. Anyway, this is home to Aries College and South College. Aries Hall was built in 1921 and is named for the university president who advocated for its construction. South Hall was built as a men's dormitory in 1872. It uh, has also offered office space, cafeteria, an armory, a bookstore, and a post office at various points during its history. Now, Aris Hall and South College and the Hill are uh, said to have a guardian of a supernatural sport. Patrick, this one's for you. <laughs> it's a large dog or wolf with red eyes and long fangs, and is said to stand watch on the hill during the late nighttime hours. Reminiscent of a bargain from the northern English lore, the special, special creature produces low howls on moonlit nights that have prompted numerous calls to the university police. While the Vargas is traditionally a harbinger of death, the creature on the hill is believed to be, by many, the ghost of a dog named Bonita. Bonita was the pet of Lieutenant Larson Python, who served as a professor for military science and tactics on the university uh, from uh, the 1890s. When Bonita passed away, she was buried on campus, and many believe that her unsettled and unsettling spirit still watches over the campus to this day. In a different version of this story, however, some describe the spirit that has a, well, let's just say it's feline in origin. Uh, some think of this as like a wampus cat of Cherokee legend. 
uh, like the Vargas, the wolf is traditionally considered a death omen, but equally terrifying as the hound or feline. Let's just say there's been little to no correlation between encounters with the creature and untimely passing somebody knock on wood. Thank you. I'm sorry, baby. A second and less terrifying spirit is said to be um, the frequent the sidewalks of the hill as well. Uh, at least he's less terrifying as long as you keep them distant. During one evening, one might encounter a gentleman walking among the students on the steps towards the Eris Hall or strolling around the hill. The apparition has been reported to wear a collar, a bowler hat that were in the fashion of the 1930s. He walks with his head down, behind, hands behind his back, and if you're lucky, he'll simply walk by you as if you don't exist. For those who are not so lucky, the man might pause, give you a little tip the hat. And while this might seem polite, that tip the hat will reveal a gaping hole in the man's head. Let's just say that it's likely that this is the spirit of a student who committed suicide in the 1930s after his girlfriend went, ran away to Boston and married another man. <laughs> Sorry, that, that's actually, that's not funny. But Patrick said uh, if he uh, if he disappears for a week or a month at some point, he's probably down on campus <laughs> trying to find the dog. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Patrick, should I tell you I found a haunted pet store? Yeah. That one's going to be coming up in a future script. I'm uh, answering for, for, for Patrick. <laughs>
With elegant chandeliers, eye-catching tile work, and glowing wood panels, the luxury presented by the hotel in the modern day belies a grim history that has taken place on the site of the hotel. Before the Reed House even existed, the property at 827 Broad Street boasted a different hotel, the Crutchfield House. Thomas Crutchfield Sr. knew exactly what he was doing when he constructed it in just across the street from the new railroad station in 1847. Chattanooga was growing by leaps and bounds, both from industry and tourism, and the Crutchfield House rose at the center of it all. An instant success, Crutchfield House enjoyed a sterling reputation that reflected well on Thomas Sr., catapulting him to the position of mayor of Chattanooga in 1849. Unfortunately, he wanted to pass him away in 1850. Ownership of the hotel goes to his son, Thomas Crutchfield, Jr., who also rose to be the mayor of Chattanooga in 1859. The drama at the Crutchfield House began in 1861, which is a new year that you're probably familiar with if you watched our show because we're going to start talking about the Civil War stuff. So, yeah, Civil War arrives and, uh, well... And in this particular case, Jefferson Davis himself arrives as well. The Civil War was on the brink of exploding when Davis sat down from his position in the U.S. Senate. He'd been recruited for the Confederacy. On his way home to Mississippi, he opted to stop, stop by the old Crutchfield house to stay the night. It's not known whether Davis actually launched into political talk at the dinner table or perhaps over brandy, but he did so regardless spouting off about the merits of the southern states seceding from the Union. And this is why politics should not be discussed at dinner yeah. or after. Or ever. <laughs> For the Crutchfield brothers, this was a very sore topic. William Crutchfield was a form, firm Union supporter, unlike his brother Thomas. Upon hearing Davis talk, William whipped around and pointed an accusing finger at the would-be Confederate president. He called Davis a traitor and a military despot. Furious, David demanded satisfaction in the form of a duel. It is perhaps only in thanks to Thomas Crutchfield that neither William nor Jefferson Davis died on that day. Thomas snagged his inflamed brother by the arm and dragged him from the room. William calmed, only somewhat, but their dispute only highlighted differences within the state of Tennessee itself. As the Civil War started to boil, Thomas Jr. sold the Crutchfield house a decision that would prove financially prudent. Prosperity did not come to the hotel's new owners. In fact, the property was converted into a makeshift hospital for Union forces in 1863. For the length of the war, the old Crutchfield House served Union troops, and many people think that it's the events of this era that explains the hauntings of the Reed House Hotel today. As for the Crutchfield House, the inn caught fire and was raised to the ground in 1867. The owners at that time chose not to rebuild. From 1871, Dr. John T. Reed decided to make something of the rubble that was the old Crutchfield House. Along with his son Samuel, they set out to build the finest hotel Chattanooga had ever seen. And for the most part, they succeeded. The Reed House Hotel opened on New Year's Day in 1872 to the excitement of the locals. The party was short-lived, though, as just a few years later in 1875, the Reed House wasn't spared from a flood that ravaged all of Chattanooga. The Nashville Union and American reported on the 2nd of March that the water is two feet deep in the post office and on parts of Market Street, four feet deep. A strong current is running through the Reed House. By 1926, the hotel had seen better days and was in desperate need of restoration. Instead of going through that hassle, the decision was made to demolish the hotel. From there, a new hotel was designed and built with an eye of meeting or exceeding its predecessor in every way. Despite being the third hotel to stand on the site, the modern Reed House retains spirited echoes of its predecessors. For many guests who stay at this illustrious hotel, they may experience some of your standard ghostly fare cold breezes, shadowy figures, and strange noises in the dead of the night. Others, however, may experience something a little more intense. Ghostly soldiers have been seen roaming the halls of the hotel's fourth floor, soldiers that are believed to have stayed and died at the Crutchfeld House when it served as the Civil War Hospital. And then there is room 311, a space that has unnerved many, even including some hardened paranormal enthusiasts. Many believe that the spirit of Annalisa Netherly has taken up residence in room 311, and she's not 
always willing to share her space with others. The official legend recounted on the Reed House Hotel website says that Annalisa accompanied her husband to the Reed House in 1927 as he was traveling for business. After a business meeting that ran a little shorter than expected, Annalisa's husband returned to the room to find Annalisa with another man. Later that night, he slit her throat while she was in the bathtub. A slightly different version implies that Annalisa was an escort and that she was at the Reed House Hotel to conduct a little business of her own. While she initially arrived um, with one man, she quickly took up with another man at the hotel instead. It's said that she would parade through the hotel with her new suitor arm in arm, sometimes right in front of her old suitor. As you might imagine, this does not end well. One day, the hotel staff went to attend to Annalisa's room, just as they had many times before. On this day, however, they found Annalisa in the bathtub. Her throat had been slashed open with a degree, with a degree of malice that screamed of jealousy or revenge. Others, however, don't believe either version of the murderous story. Their alternate theory is that Annalisa was abandoned by her husband, who turned his attention to another woman. In this version of the tale, poor Annalisa Natalie died of a broken heart. Regardless of the story that you want to believe, they all end with Annalisa dead and subsequently haunting room 311. Over the years, guests have reported wide-ranging paranormal activity in the room, including unexplained noises, flickering lights, Bosses turning on by themselves and shadowy figures. Her continuing presence in the room makes it clear that she carries a distaste for men, particularly those who smoke. More than one man was chased from the room in the middle of the night, claiming that they were battered by an unseen force and that sometimes furniture, such as bedside lamps, were thrown at them. Today, if you want to stay in this infamous room, you need to be prepared to wait and be a little lucky. At this time, Room 311 is only available for reservations on weekends in the month of October. I called and verified this just yesterday, so this is as up-to-date as it gets. And the only people that subscribe to the hotel's mailing list are made aware of when the rooms are up for rent in October. So, yeah, you need to subscribe to their mailing list and then get really, really lucky. I'm, it's so not going to weekend. Yeah. Maybe five if it's that that year. Yeah, it's not clear if it's first come, first served, or if it's like everybody gets into like a lottery or what, but in any case, there's only like, there's less than 10 nights a year where you can actually stay in this room. So, yeah, you got to be lucky. For everyone else, if you're not lucky enough to actually reserve the room, the room is available for tours upon request and pending availability of a hotel tour guide. For those who are able to visit the room, you'll be treated to a step back in time. During the hotel's most recent renovation, Room 311 was restored to its original 1920s-era appearance, as Annalisa Netherly would have known it. Every detail is accurate, right down to the bathroom's vintage clawfoot bathtub. Ooh, creepy. I swear it, I would not stay there. Uh, you, so, if you guys recall, I'm super down to stay in haunted places when I've had um, encouragement, unless... <laughs> A child is saying my name over and over and over. Spirit box. Yes. Once we, that happens, I'm done. <laughs> we, remember, we remember that well. That was uh, a little over two years ago now. Oh, my God. Time moves <laughs> fast. It does. <laughs> All right. So now we're going to move over to Chapel Hill. Of course, uh, not to be confused with the more famous Chapel Hill in North Carolina. We don't do that. Uh, this Chapel Hill in Tennessee got its name from the original settlers who relocated from Chapel Hill in North Carolina. Not that that's relevant to the story. Not relevant at all. And uh, it's, fun fact. it's a fun fact, and apparently the settlers, you could take the settlers out of Chapel Hill, but you couldn't take the Chapel Hill out of the settlers. To the point where they named the same thing. Yep. The skeleton's head just moved. <laughs> Guys, the skeleton's alive. It's petting the unit. Uh, she seems to enjoy it. Sorry, baby girl. I got it. Here we go. That was a feisty. Anyway, so on a dark and rainy night, because you know it's got to start. A freight train heading south out of Nashville on the L&N rail line was bearing down on Chapel Hill, Tennessee. Several days of heavy rain had washed out part of the hill beneath the stretch of track before the trestle crossing the Ducks River. 
creating a potentially dangerous hazard for trains passing over it. A lone signalman was dispatched up the track with a lantern to warn the locomotive to stop so repairs could be made before the train could safely cross. Donning his oil-treated raincoat and rusty lantern from the station platform, the signalman began the muddy walk up north to the track. Somewhere near the modern-day crossing of the tracks over the low street, the signalman felt the familiar rumble of the steam-driven steel wheels grinding on the track and the faint headlight in the distance. He watched as the train approached, knowing they probably couldn't see him through the torrential downpour until they were much closer. He raised his lamp as high as he could, waving the dim light back and forth to catch the engineer's attention. But the train was not slowing down. He waved it faster, even jumping to get the light and the erratic movement, but there was no stopping it. He waited until the last possible minute to move off the track, which turned out to be a fatal mistake. The rains made the track slightly slick, and the signalman slipped, striking his head on one of the rails. At that moment, the engineer noticed the flickering lantern laying on the middle of the track. He sounded the whistle. He pulled the brake, but it was too late. The giant engine skidded past the lantern, wheels screeching, and steel slid across steel, sparking from the friction. The train finally stopped several hundred yards later, far past where the signalman had fallen. The engineer took the lantern of his own, ran back through the night to find the signalman, but all he found was what was left of him. The steel wheels had severed the signalman's head clean off at the neck, leaving his headless corpse lying in the mud next to the track. Upon seeing the gruesome scene, the engineer dropped his lantern and ran back to the engine. We hit him. We hit him. What a terrible accident. We hit him. Brakeman and the conductor could not console the poor, distraught engineer. They put him back in the cab and went to collect the poor signalman's headless body. They searched through the pouring rain for hours, but the body was gone. All that remained was a broken, flickering lantern in the middle of the track. Many years later, sightings were reported of a strange light on the track to the west of Chapel Hill, not just by one person. Hundreds of people have claimed to have witnessed the strange light, and no one can explain it. Of those, we have a selection of some of the most notable encounters that have happened on the track at Chapel Hill. What year did that happen? doesn't say. Mm. There is a Charles Dickens story. Oh, yeah, we've read oh, that. The yeah. yeah, we read that mm-hmm. as a, um, actually, it was a Christmas story. Yeah. It was written as a Victorian, Victorian Christmas story. Yes, it was. Or a Victorian Christmas ghost story. Yeah. Yeah. So the first date that in the 1950s, two boys and their uncle were out walking the track one evening looking for the light. One of the boys, Jackie, were bored, and he started to toss rocks the nearby woods, while the other boy, Tiwi, was chiding him for making a racket. He stopped mid-sentence and stared down the track. There in the distance, the glowing light, and it appeared to be moving straight towards them. They all scurried off the track and watched as the uh, strange orb stopped swooping and swaying erratically around the open area. The light stopped moving, and suddenly it swooped in at high speed towards them, hitting one of the boys in the chest. The blow disappeared and all was black. The uncle stated that as the orb hit his nephew, Jackie, a loud thud was felt through the railroad tie beneath his feet. The boy said the orb hit him and afterward it felt like a powerful force paralyzed him, holding him still. He tried to scream but couldn't. Kiwi said he also felt the thud through the ground as the orb suddenly reappeared behind Jackie after passing through him and then speeding off down the track and out of sight. The second tale involved four Korean-speaking boys in the 1970s that decided to investigate the light for themselves. They drove up on the tracks around midnight where the train crosses Depot Street by the old train station. It was a clear, moonless fall night with a slight fog hovering below to the ground. They pulled up on the crossing grade and put the car in park. The boys were on the driver's side, watched down the left side of the tracks, so while the boys on the passenger side watched down the right. They left the car running in case the train came, or if the sheriff pulled up. They didn't want to get in trouble for parking on the track. After a few minutes of watching and poking fun at each other for believing some silly story about ghost lights 
A light suddenly appeared in the distance on the passenger side and was moving towards them. Panic boys who were shouting at the driver to move the car and get out of there, screaming that it was coming right for them. He slammed the car into gear and floored the pedal, but the car wouldn't move. They shouted more and more to go and to get the car moving right now, but still the engine revved and the car wouldn't move. The light moved closer and closer, picking up speed again as it approached. They all screamed and braced for impact as the orb collided with their car. Again, a loud thud was reported, but the light diminished to a faint glow. In their fright, the voice concluded it must be on top of the car or under it. They didn't know which. Nothing happened for what seemed like an eternity, and then suddenly the glow intensified as the orb continued past them down the track and sped off into the night. After the light disappeared, the car worked again. The driver sped off into the town and gasped uh, to a gas station that was closed for the night. They all got out and sighed with relief after the counter, trying to make sense of what they had seen. As the driver rounded back to the car, he noticed a roll rows of deep scratches in the paint that were not there before. The final story uh, about this light on the railroad tracks uh, provides a different explanation as to why it's there. Now, this one starts in December of 1940, when a single mother of two teenage boys known as Mrs. Ketchum went missing from her rural home just outside of Chapel Hill. Being around Christmas time, the neighbors didn't worry too much about her absence but thought it was strange that the boys didn't go with her. Even then, they didn't know where she, uh, she else, me, they also didn't know where she went. After two weeks, the, the boys and the neighbors decided to notify the police of a missing woman, and an investigation was started. It wasn't long before suspicions of foul play concerning another reclusive neighbor they linked to her, but they couldn't confirm what had happened without her body. Authorities questioned the man relentlessly, and one day, when returning to ask him for additional information, they found him dead of suicide. And the town folk immediately condemned him as her abductor and that the guilty conscience compelled him to take his own life. Police assumed she must be dead after so much time, so the boys were adopted out to other families in another state, and the case remained an unsolved mystery. Some of the town folk were not satisfied that Mrs. Ketchum's body was never found. So almost a year later, in January of 1941, they contacted a well-known clairvoyant named Simon Warner. He was ironically known as the murder doctor who lived in Shelbyville. Now, Mr. Warner had an uncanny knack for finding missing people and things that uh, through his gifted, and of course, he agreed to help. Through his methods, it is said that he told them she was certainly dead. Uh, and described a location in exacting detail where the body could be found, including the plant species of brush she was hidden under. The description was so vivid that some of the townsfolk knew exactly where he was talking about, and a search party was launched. Mrs. Ketchum was found in the exact place where Warner said, with every detail correct, even the plant species. Her frozen body was taken to the morgue, where, strangely, a long-time local undertaker, Thomas Lawrence, did not perform an autopsy or list a cause of death on her death certificate before she was buried. It is said that the occurrences of the light did not start until after Mrs. Ketchum was found, and the light with her spirit erratically wandering the woods near where she died, searching for her son. When the young man was nearby, her light races towards him to see if it is one of her boys and disappears when her spirit of her neighbor and abductor who committed suicide comes for her. In the end, there's no definitive proof about the light's origin, but with many reporting sightings since the 1950s, there's something strange going on on the tracks of Chapel Hill, and it's not just the train. <laughs> Got one more story for you tonight, and uh, yes, Una is, she's, Framed herself perfectly. She has. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just a little cuter. And mm -hmm. you might not be able to see so well because he's a void and he's kind of behind the table on the computer here, but Nico is very content at the moment as well. Apparently, fast time for me. Vincent is very happy. Yes. Vincent's <laughs> is all snuggled up on the big bag, aka the cat bed. It's like I heard my name. Yeah, it's his, it's his bed. All right. So. I need to call the eye doctor still. Okay. Anyway, I digress. So, 
Tonight, City of Memphis. Our tale begins in 1855, an era when Memphis was a bustling and growing riverfront town based on the city's strategic placement of the of, on the Mississippi River trade routes. A Memphis resident named W.J. Davey borrowed funds against his home from Robert Brinkley to invest in the Memphis Charleston Railroad. When the Civil War broke out, the railroad was seized by the military and Davies' stock investment became worthless. To hold off the bankers from foreclosure, he worked out a deal to sell his mansion back to Brinkley. Davies' finances were ruined, and the stresses of this, his loss took a heavy toll. He passed away a few short years later, rumored to have gone insane before his death. An important point that I will get back to, but first... Brinkley was on much more stable footing and decided to use the baby home for a new purpose. The beautiful mansion stood on the corner of Fifth and Georgia Streets, and Brinkley spent the next two years renovating the stately home into an all-female college. Many who worked on the renovations reported strange happenings on the property even before it opened as the Brinkley Female College, with many believing the demented ghost of W.J. Davey had returned to haunt his old house and was unhappy with the renovations. The rumors of Davey's ghost gave the property its haunted reputation, but the ghost story of the Brinkley Female College was only getting started. In 1868, the Brinkley Female College opened its doors under headmaster J.D. Meredith was faced for 50 female students. On a cool day in February of 1871, a young Brinkley student named Clara Robertson sat upstairs at the piano on the second floor with the window open. Clara had a recital to practice for, but as she played the first note, a frigid breeze blew through the open window, sending her sheet music floating to the floor. Clara turned to collect the sheets, and she became aware of the fact that she was not alone. A young girl in a dirty pink dress stood at the far side of the room staring at Clara with a blank expression. The sudden appearance of the girl startled Clara, but she took a moment for a closer look. The girl was small, very thin, and as quiet as a mouse. Clara never even heard her enter the room. That's when Clara noticed that the girl's face wasn't just dirty, it was skeletal. The skeletal girl took a step towards Clara, and Clara fled from the parlor screaming. She ran to a bedroom, jumped on the bed, and pulled a pillow up over her head to hide her face, praying that it was all a waking nightmare. The girl in the dirty pink dress followed Clara, walking up to her bedside, placing her hand next to Clara's face on the pillow, and stared down with blank, hollow eyes. Then, just as quietly as she appeared, she was gone. Clara bolted from the room to find the headmaster, but instead found a group of her classmates. As she breathlessly related the story to her friends, they laughed at her without believing a word of it. Clara was so upset that she ran home. Clara's father, a well-known lawyer named J.D. Robertson, had trouble consoling Clara, but finally persuaded her to go back to school in the morning and forget whatever she had seen. When she arrived for class, no one spoke of anything that happened the day before, making Clara suspicious that perhaps the whole incident was some cruel joke played by a classmate. The day passed without incident, but that would change the following day. When the ghost appeared this time, more than just Clara was present to witness it. Two of Clara's friends and the teacher were in the room when the skeletal girl appeared. Some investigators think that others said that they had just seen the ghost to placate Clara, but Clara claimed she absolutely saw the little girl again in the same dingy pink dress and distorted face. Clara went home that day and declared to her father that she would not go back to the school again. So he decided to investigate the claims himself. Mr. Robertson enlisted a clairvoyant named Mary Nurse to visit the school and assess what his daughter was seeing. Mary spoke with Clara about the encounters and developed a theory that the ghostly girl was trying to communicate or must want something from Clara. Mary told Clara that if the little girl appeared to her to speak again, then uh, or appeared to her again to speak to her. The next day, Clara got the chance to do just that. Armed with the courage instilled in her by the clairvoyant, Clara returned to school the following day. She was playing with two of her friends in an upstairs room when the little girl appeared again. Clara stood and faced the spirit, suppressing the urge to scream or run. The ghost simply stood there and stared back. Clara raised her trembling hand and gave a nervous wave. The skeletal girl mimicked her movements and waved back. 
feeling less scared, Clara took a step forward. Again, the girl mimicked her and took a step forward. She took another step, and so did the other girl. Everything Clara did, the little girl did too, until they were only a few feet from each other. Remembering Mary's instructions, Clara found her voice and asked the girl her name. She was shocked to get a reply. The girl, little girl said her name was Lizzie Davy, and Clara didn't need to be afraid of her. She said that this was her house, and she wanted everyone to leave except for Clara. Lizzie was adamant that her father didn't want anyone else in the house. Clara told her that that was impossible, that WDJV had died, and the house was now her school. Lizzie said that she could not rest until she knew the house was going to be taken care of like her father wanted. Clara, being only 13, told Lizzie there wasn't anything that she could do about it, but her father was a lawyer, and he would know what to do. Lizzie told her that she would visit Clara's father with instructions, then she vanished. Clara immediately ran several blocks home as fast as she could to tell her father what Lizzie had said. Mr. Robertson called Mary and had Mr. Meredith to be present to hear Clara's claims from the ghost. He was skeptical of the whole business, but believed his daughter was telling him the truth. The headmaster became angry, worried that all this ghost business was slowly the school's spotless reputation. He argued with Mr. Robertson, who himself was more concerned about his daughter's well-being than what people thought of the school. They implored Mary for guidance on what to do, and she recommended holding a seance at the Robertson house to contact Lizzie. The event would need some of Mr. Robertson's closest friends and be made public. Mr. Robertson was even more skeptical of this request, but finally relented. A day was set, invitations were sent out, and the public and media became very interested in the otherworldly goings-on at the Brinkley Women's College. A crowd gathered outside the Robertson home for the seance. Mary settled, sub, uh, settled several participants around the Robertson's darkened dining room table, including some of Robertson's neighbors, Headmaster Meredith, Clara, and her father, and attempted to conjure the spirit of Lizzie Davy. She called out for Lizzie to communicate to her and make herself known. While there was no immediate response from Lizzie, Clara began to convulse like she was having a seizure. Mary pushed forward despite Mr. Robertson's protest. Clara suddenly went limp. Suddenly, Clara flailed around wildly and had to be restrained by several of the men present. A few moments later, she calmed and sat normally at the table as if nothing had happened. Mary gave Clara a piece of paper and pencil and asked to whom she was talking to. Clara wrote the name Lizzie Davy on it. Mary asked all sorts of questions about the incidents Clara relayed, and Lizzie answered all of them just as Clara had described. She then told the neighbors to begin asking questions, which again, through Clara, Lizzie answered them all. Finally, it was Mr. Robertson's turn to ask. He wanted to know why she had chosen to talk to his daughter, to which Lizzie replied, she's the kindest person in the house, and I want her to own it. She went on to tell Mr. Robertson that there was a large jar buried under a stump behind the house that her father had buried there before he died. Lizzie said it contained jewelry, money, gold, and papers that would Clara claim the house is hers. Along with the promise of buried riches, she issued a warning. Lizzie said that her soul would not rest until Clara became the new owner of her father's house. Otherwise, she would curse the property to be of no value to anyone forever. Suddenly, Clara convulsed wildly again, and then she went still. Lizzie had departed, but ghost fever took Memphis by storm. Newspapers ran sensational headlines in every issue. Mediums and clairvoyants were suddenly in high demand, and those who could afford it booked them at all hours, hoping to channel dead family members or to find out about their own buried treasure. Even Clara was dragged along for the ones that Mary performed, channeling Lizzie to the amazement of others. Bars created ghost tale recipes. Hmm. Table tipping, slate writing, Ouija boards, and tambourines were all used to communicate with the dead. Those who were quick became rich on the ghost fever. After Lizzie's initial warning and declaration of treasure, Mr. Robertson and Headmaster Meredith employed some of the others that attended their stance to seek out the stump behind the school and see if the ghost was telling the truth. The announcement of, uh, of digging to commence took ghost fever to a dizzying level and threw the school into turmoil. Still, the digging started, and at a depth of around five feet, they hit a solid layer of brick. 
While this was happening, Lizzie appeared to Clara back near her home and demanded to know why Clara was not the one doing the digging. She emphasized that Clara was to find the jar herself if she was going to stave off the curse and then disappeared. Clara ran to the school to tell them what had happened, so they gave her a shovel and helped her down into the hole. But after a couple shovels full of dirt, either the Memphis heat or the stress of the whole ordeal set in, and Clara collapsed. Shortly thereafter, Mr. Robertson requested that Mary conduct another seance with an offer to switch places with Clara. He would dig in her stead if it meant peace of mind for his daughter. The seance was conducted, and Lizzie agreed, but with one condition. The jar had to remain closed for 60 days once it was found. After that, it could be opened. She did not give a reason for the delay, but was adamant that her instructions be followed. The next day, Mr. Robertson took up a shovel himself and worked through the bricks into the dark and damp soil below. After about an hour of digging, the lid of a musty jar shone through the dirt. He carefully extracted it, cautious not to break or damage it. Inside, he could see different sized bags and envelopes. He took the jar home without telling anyone he found it and hid it in his backyard outhouse where no one would think to look. Eventually, he revealed to the press that the jar had been found exactly as Lizzie's ghost described, and the 60-day window started. There would be a public opening of the jar at the Greenlaw Opera House with $1 tickets available for the spectacle. The proceeds were pledged to a local orphanage, to which skeptics thought was the only redeeming moment of the whole jar ordeal. All of the hubbub around the incident had taken a toll on Clara, so her father sent her to visit relatives far from Memphis until the big day that Lizzie's curse would be no more. Speculation ran wild over the jar and its contents. Many inquired about seeing the jar, touching it, shaking it, anything to satisfy their curiosity. But Mr. Robertson held firm that the jar was in safekeeping until the appointed time. His assurances were not enough to keep thieves at bay. One afternoon, about a week after before the opening event, a loud noise from the backyard caused him to investigate and find three men pulling the jar from his outhouse hiding place. As he confronted them, they clubbed him on the head, jumped the wrought iron fence, and ran away with the jar. It was gone, along with the contents, and never recovered. Even though Lizzie's instructions were not met, she never appeared to Clara again after that. Her curse held true, however. Shortly after the buzz about Lizzie and the jar died down, with some claiming the whole story was some elaborate hoax, the Brinkley College would fall into ruin and close its doors forever. Clara completed her education elsewhere, married, and moved to Arkansas, where she continued to regale people with the strange tale of Lizzie in the jar. As for the house where this all occurred, the building became run down and was rented out to a local family for the simple fee of just keeping the property maintained. They lived there for many years until a wealthy northerner offered to rent the house from Brinkley. That arrangement quickly fell apart when Brinkley discovered the man only rented the house to hold seances again and to try and revive the fervor around Memphis's ghost jar. He was soon evicted, and the original caretaker family moved back in for many more years. Hard times called for even harder decisions, and the home was eventually split up into tenement apartments until the property and several others around it were purchased by a paper company for pennies on the dollar. It would seem Lizzie's curse held true after all. The homes were scheduled to be demolished to make room for the paper company. An investor came along to buy and dismantle the Davy House, um, Davy House materials with an intent to rebuild it in Arkansas, but records failed to show if the relocation ever happened. Once the paper company was built over the old Davy home site, bizarre occurrences started up with workers reporting strange noises at night, objects moving on their own and intense hot and cold spots throughout the structure. So what's the story of Lizzie Davy? We mentioned earlier that W.J. Davy had reportedly lost his mind before his death. The reason for that was the death of his young daughter, Lizzie Davy, on October 6, 1863. Members of the Davy family have confirmed that Lizzie died in the mansion and was buried in a pink dress that had strawberry juice stains down the front. She spilled the juice on her dress the day that she died, making the dress look stained and dingy. However, it was her favorite dress, and she hardly ever wore anything else, even to the grave. I don't want to know what's in that jar. I guess we'll never know. No. But that was our last story for this evening. Told you it was a little bit of a longer one. 
running a little late, later than we usually do, but good story. We started later. We started a little later, too. Yep. Started a few minutes late, rambled on about the last two weekends of it, which was amazing, mm-hmm. again. But, again, we have next, forward, next year to look forward to. First Churchill Irish Festival again. GalaxyCon again. Yep. The RVA Burlesque Festival again. And Chris Care AuthorCon 3 again. So, all around this time next year. So, all stuff to look forward to. Alrighty. Bring it on. Yeah. But with that, uh, we will go ahead. We will wrap it up for tonight. Um,